Every job has its tough days, right? But there is one day in what I do that I remember as being the absolute worst in my life. I had just sat through a two-hour inquisition into my character. And though that meeting was 20 years ago, in a church that I was serving in Ohio, I can remember the details of that meeting and the pain that it inflicted like it was yesterday. In life's most significant moments, our mind becomes a camera. And every blink of the eye captures images. My most memorable image of that period in my life is of the one person who could have spoken clarity into the situation and did not. I'd been both a pastor and a friend to him. I'd walked him through darker days in his life than I hope any of you will ever experience. He personally knew that the accusations against me were not true. And he said nothing. Why is it that it seems that the people who know us best that we love most, have the power to hurt us the most. Why does it have to be that when we open our heart to love, we also open our heart to pain? Relational wounds happen when we need somebody. And they just disappear. When they say something, even unintentionally, and it hurts. Or when they live their lives so self-absorbed, they just don't even notice what's happening in our life. Their absence cuts, their silence stings. And it happens with an unfortunate regularity. Through a breakup, through a divorce, it seems like our circle of friends gets cut in half. We lose our job, and though we imagine it won't happen, we somehow lose the friends that we saw every single day, yet they promised they'd stay in touch. The funeral is over, and everybody else's life goes back to normal, except ours. The emails dwindle, the phone stops ringing as much, the text messages don't come in. Nothing seems to steal our joy as rapidly as abandonment or betrayal. The sharp tip of a surgeon's knife can never cut as deeply as those we love. I know how you feel. 
I think that's what Jesus would say to us when it comes to the pain and betrayal that we can feel in relationships. I know how you feel. Think about Jesus' most intimate group of friends, the 12 disciples, the men he hand-picked to follow him. And they logged hundreds of miles traveling together over dusty roads in the two and a half years they were together. These 12 men had seen Jesus perform amazing miracles. They had seen Jesus heal a withered hand and restore it to usefulness. They'd seen Jesus heal crippled legs and feet, not just to usefulness, but instill in them immediately the ability to dance. Personally, that's a miracle I could use. They had seen Jesus heal madmen and make them sane, raise corpses back to life, and on multiple occasions seen Jesus feed thousands of people from what essentially amounted to a child's school lunch. And though Jesus repeatedly warned the disciples that his earthly ministry would come to an abrupt and brutal end, they just didn't seem to get it. It's like they were waiting every single day for Jesus to take his rightful place on the throne of Israel and become their physical king. In John chapter 13, in the final days of Jesus' ministry with them, in fact, in the final hours they would have with him, we find Jesus gathered with the twelve to celebrate Passover in the upper room of a private home that they had borrowed to celebrate this feast. And he continues to astound his disciples. On a night that any of us would have been tempted to throw in the towel, Jesus picks up one instead and washes the disciples' feet. So they are reclining now at a table. It was how they took the meal. You know, the table's here. And they're kind of reclined on these couches with their shoulders toward the table, leaning on one elbow, their feet away from the table. And Jesus makes an astonishing announcement, delivers some difficult news that a betrayer is sitting among them. Now, a lot of what Jesus said just astounded them. It was difficult to understand and accept. But this? I I can't imagine being around the table and having Jesus drop this bomb. It's not like there were strangers in the room. You know, there were a hundred other people watching this dinner and they were just sitting at the head table. That wasn't the case. There were only the twelve and Jesus in the room. This was a private affair. And the disbelief and confusion that settled in was understandable. John mentions it twice. One of those times he says the disciples stared at one another. They were at a loss to figure out which one of them Jesus meant. So they start looking at each other, questioning. You know what that's like to be in that kind of a room. So, all of a sudden, Andrew starts eyeballing James, going, "Eh, it's probably him, right? Simon throws a disapproving glance at Matthew, and after all, he's a tax collector, right? Who really trusts tax collectors, right? We don't, even today. Thomas starts doubting everybody, because that's just who he was. He doubts everything. 
even doubts Jesus. Like, really, is this going to happen? Jesus is probably going to turn this into a parable. Just kidding, guys. There's a story behind this, and here's what I really meant. Here's the application. It's all good. And then Philip thinks, I know who it is. Bartholomew. Dude hasn't said a word since we picked him up. It's always the silent type, right? Every movie, it's the silent type. It ends up being the mass murderer and the traitor. It's the silent type. You think about it in the Gospels. You hear about Bartholomew being picked up as a disciple, and there's nothing else mentioned in all of Scripture about Bartholomew. It's got to be him, right? Mm-mm. No. Who on earth could Jesus be talking about? So it's fascinating what happens next. Good old impulsive Simon Peter takes charge. So in the arrangement at the table, Jesus is reclining, and then next to him is John, because you know, it's John's gospel that, interestingly enough, tells us that John is the disciple that Jesus loved. Kind of an interesting study in John. And then next to John is Peter. So Peter is leaning over against John, and he goes, um, so ask him. All this confusion in the room, just ask him, dude. So John leans over and says, seriously, Jesus, who is it? Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. He doesn't tell them directly who the betrayer is. But he says, I've got this piece of bread. I'm going to dip it in the wine. And whoever I give the bread to, that's who's going to betray me. Now, we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. It'd be like going to a movie this afternoon, and they show you the last five minutes of the movie before you see the whole movie, and it just kind of then all the way through, you see the nuances of what's happened. We know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus hands the bread to Judas and then looks him in the eye. And says to him, dude, what, well, and dude is actually a Greek word. That's <laughs> where I got it start. So uh, he says to him, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Don't, don't drag this thing out. Judas knows that Jesus knows. He gets up and leaves immediately. And within hours, Jesus is arrested and the whole series of events begins that leads to Jesus' death. Maybe even more significant than that in this context is that Judas wasn't the only betrayer in the room that night. The dinner included all 12 of the disciples, but by the time the crucifixion is over, John will be the only one left standing at the foot of the cross. And Peter that night in that room, declares that he's ready to die for Jesus. Just a short time after that, he has this valiant attempt to defend Jesus. His aim is off, and so he slices off this guy's ear. Not too long after that, that three times, not once, three times, he denies even knowing who Jesus is. Jesus' address book is full of people who deny him. By the time he's laid in the tomb, his disciples have run for the hills like their hair is on fire. As one author said, the road to the resurrection is paved with disloyalty, buffered by guardrails of isolation, and marked with the skid marks of failing friendships. Now, I don't want to project that we know or we understand 
what Jesus went through. And we have anywhere approached the agony that what Jesus went through from that upper room through the crucifixion. But what I will say is, I think Jesus thoroughly understands what we feel when we are betrayed or abandoned by our friends. We've all felt the sting of betrayal and abandonment. We know what it's like to have a spouse confess they've had an affair. We know what it's like to have a fellow employee or a subordinate pilfer accounts at work. We know what it's like to share our deepest secrets with a confidant and later have them betray that confidentiality and tell our deepest secrets to someone else. We know what it's like to have a friend disappear when we need them most. And I think it's precisely because God has hardwired us for a relationship with Him and importantly, a relationship with others that those wounds of abandonment hurt us at the deepest part of our souls. Betrayal becomes one of the most painful acts we can inflict on another human being. Even Dante made it the ninth circle of hell in his inferno. Betrayal damages our ability to trust and it punctures our willingness to risk vulnerability. I think that's why what's more fascinating than the betrayal that happened to Jesus is his response. It's shocking. He continues to love and serve and give to all of his friends, even to the bitter end. He extends love to the crowd. That same crowd that cheered his entry to Jerusalem at midweek on Friday mocked him and demanded his death. And in response, Jesus offered his life so they could be reconciled to God. From the cross, Jesus extends grace to the people who were, in, were hurling insults and even to those who stood by silently and witnessed his death. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue the significance of what's happening here. They really don't understand what's taking place here. They don't know what they're doing. Instead of pulling back from his closest friends after his resurrection, those who had abandoned and betrayed to him, Jesus takes the first step. He reaches out to them And multiple times he appears to them and reaffirms his love for them. And then to poor Simon Peter, who seems to be carrying an extra load of guilt. When you read the stories after the resurrection, it seems like Jesus is hugging him a little bit tighter than everybody else. My guess is that every single one of us would have no trouble at all making a list of people who have betrayed us or abandoned us when we've needed them most. Jesus had a list. The question is, what do we do with the pain? Because nursing that pain along is only going to steal our joy. 
I think that's why the Bible cautions us that we should look after each other so that none of us fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Look, aside from being a command of Scripture, that's just sound relational advice. Even if you're at a place this morning where you're not sure you believe that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is something that you're going to pattern your life after, that's just solid relationship advice. Because if you've ever hung around anybody that's grown bitter in this life, the one thing you learn pretty quickly is you don't want to hang around them much more. Because that bitterness that's in them, corrupts every conversation, every relationship they have. And if you can trace that source of bitterness, if you hang around that long, most often it traces itself back to some relationship that was broken at some point in their life and never got healed or reconciled. So how do we do what Hebrews says? How do we look after each other? How do we pay attention in our lives? How do we keep that little root of bitterness from growing and poisoning all of our relationships? Let me encourage you to make three lists. Lists of names. And there's a phrase that goes with each one of those that will help us reconcile when relationships are broken. And above all, we'll keep that root of bitterness out of our lives. Here's the first phrase. I forgive. Some of us have been carrying hurts around far too long in our life, and we need to just let them go. It's time to forgive the hurt and the person who caused it. It's time to offer clemency to every single person who has hurt us, ever left something undone, ever said something that's damaged us or wounded us in our lives. Because the alternative, a lack of forgiveness in our lives has a devastating impact, not just on our friendships, but on our relationship with God. Being unwilling to forgive is one of the few things that scriptures say will stop God's grace cold in our lives. Jesus said it this way, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins pretty clear. So I would would encourage you, and I'm doing it too, make a list. Make a list of the people in your life that you need to forgive. Now, this is not a list you're going to make public. This is not a list you're going to put on Facebook and tag them. (laughs) This is a list of names we're going to make and we're going to pray over. It's a very simple prayer to pray. God, you know and I know how this person has hurt me. Help me forgive them. And it's especially helpful if you take those names one at a time and you say out loud, God, I forgive Drop their name in. 
I want to encourage you to do that. But I also want to encourage you that forgiveness takes time. I also want to encourage you, it doesn't, for very few things in life, does it take a lifetime. We need to pray this prayer over and over again. And eventually, we'll begin to feel it. That we are forgiving these people. Over time, you might find the strength to pray a different prayer. A prayer that God would bless this person. A prayer that says, God, I ask you to bless them and show your goodness and your grace in their life. That's how you're going to know you're making progress. When you can genuinely pray that prayer. When you meet somebody that's done that kind of forgiveness, it stands out. I met a young man about 15 years ago and had a couple conversations with him. It was an amazing story. He had been, he was in his mid to late 20s, and he had been sexually abused as a child. Now, in his 20s, He'd been through a lot of therapy. In his 20s, he had begun a relationship with Christ. And he felt that it was critical for him as a part of his relationship with Christ to express forgiveness to the man who had abused him. I want to be very, very clear This was a part of his journey. It was not something I'm saying every single person needs to do. It was important for him. So he went on a search. And he found this man. His abuser was living in the inner city of Chicago. In a rundown apartment. And was wheelchair bound. Which for him took some of the threat out of meeting him. The abuser was alone. He'd been abandoned by most of his family because of his past. So this young man did a very courageous thing and with his new wife went downtown to meet his abuser. As they talked, his abuser apologized and he forgave him. I expected the story to end there. That'd be a great story. But he went on and he said, you know, I genuinely felt sorry for him. He was alone and abandoned. And so my wife and I started asking about what he needed. And we decided that God was calling us to take him food. And so every Sunday we go down and we take him food. And if we have time, we get him out of the house and we take him out to the park and get him some sunshine because some weeks he just doesn't even get out of his house. I was amazed. I was stunned as his story unfolded. And we talked for that day for about an hour and a half about what he was doing and the grace he was extending to this man. He had made a very difficult choice in his life. The choice to trade the pain of bitterness for the joy that comes with forgiveness. And he was set free from a lifetime of bitterness he had held. 
we got people we need to forgive. And we need to remember as we make a list of names, it's important for us to remember that forgiveness is a busy highway. It's not a one-way street. It's shocking for us, some of us, to realize that while we're making our list of people to forgive, there's other people that are making a list and our name might be on their list. There might be people that we have hurt, we have offended, somebody who wishes that we had been there for them as a friend. And we weren't. We were scared. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know what to do. And so we just remained silent or we withdrew and did nothing at all. And I think we can each make a list of those people too. People we need to simply pick up the phone and call or write a note to and say these two words, I'm sorry. Odds are it'll be a smaller list. But it's no less important than the first list. I'm sorry helps us reconcile broken relationships. I'm sorry helps us Stop another root of bitterness that can grow up in our lives and poison everything. So we need to forgive some people. We need to apologize to others. And there's one more list. One more phrase that bears mentioning this morning. And I think this is the easiest list for us to make. There's a group of people in each of our lives that need to hear two simple but powerful words. And they're these. Thank you. And we forget those sometimes. There are people who stand by us in our toughest days. There are people who repeatedly pick up the phone and call or text or check on us and ask, how are you doing? And then they really listen when we tell them. Friendships like that make all the difference on tough days. And we need to just simply say thank you with a phone call or an email or a text or a handwritten note. Jesus demonstrated throughout his life, and even on his tough days, the importance of forgiving, reaching out, taking that first step to people who had betrayed and abandoned him. Now, it doesn't mean that in our lives we have to become a doormat. It doesn't mean that we have to become best friends again with everyone who's hurt us. Some friendships reach a point where we do have to end them. It's necessary. But there is a joy that comes when we go the extra mile, when we mend a mangled relationship. We won't have a 100% success rate in that. It won't come with every attempt. But sometimes there is great joy and peace that comes in just trying. So what if we do that this week? What if each one of us just makes one attempt? What if we call and apologize to an old friend that we feel like we've let down? What if, as an act of forgiveness, we drop a handwritten note to somebody who's been absent in our lives? Just tell them we're thinking about them praying for them. What if 
We simply invited some friends over that we miss spending time with. And don't worry about who's withdrawn. We just rekindle that relationship. <laughs> I was working on the message this week, and God just kept nagging me. It's probably the best way to say it that I needed to do what I was going to teach. I hate that. <laughs> so, I wrote a note of encouragement. To that friend who abandoned me 20 years ago, on my darkest day. It was a hard thing to do. See, he and I haven't communicated at all for 20 years. I told him I was thinking about him, which I was. <laughs> I didn't tell him everything I was thinking. That's not helpful. I told him I prayed for him which I did and that I was praying God's best for him for his wife for his kids he may even have grandkids by now and I discovered firsthand that what I'm telling you is true there is freedom that comes in letting go. There is another step of forgiveness that comes in those simple acts of writing those words of blessing. Look, life is just too short to not do this. Hanging on to the past just makes us bitter people. And that bitterness has the opportunity to ruin everything else in our lives. It robs us of the joy that Jesus intends us to have. So where do you need to interrupt the silence in your life? And say, I'm sorry. Where do you need to be the one who takes the first step and initiate a process of forgiveness. Not with a backhanded slight, but with a genuine expression of forgiveness. It is never, never too late for these simple words to start that process.